Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history afresh, I converted to Catholicism in December 2017. And today I'm looking at a wonderful Bible book. It's called The Song of Songs. It's also known as The Canticles or the Song of Solomon. It's a very short book of just eight short chapters. It's a book of wisdom. And as an evangelical Christian, I believed and assumed, as most of my mentors and pastors did, that the Song of Solomon was to be taken literally, that it was a love poem about the sexual and sensual love between a man and a woman. In other words, the literal interpretation. But after reading the footnotes in the New Community Bible and doing some research into the historical viewpoint of this book, this book has historically been seen as an allegory of the relationship between God and Israel, and then seen historically by Christians as an allegory of the relationship between Christ and his church. And I didn't think I would change my view on the Song of Songs. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Is it literal or is it an allegory? And Rabbi Akiba, who lived in the second century AD, said all the writings in the Bible are holy. The Song of Songs is the holy of holies. The world itself is not worth the day on which this book was given to Israel. So this is an in incredibly insightful view he had on this book and I thought goodness me that's a bit of an overstatement but as I started studying in depth and cross-referencing this book with other parts of scripture I was amazed at how deep and and spiritual this book is so Here's, we're going to go through this book and have a look at it. I'm not going to read every verse, but we'll summarise each section and look at whether it's an allegory or literal. If you want to go really deep into this book, a couple of books you can read. One is St. John of the Cross, Spiritual Canticle, and that was written in 1622. And then there's St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote sermons on the Canticle of Canticles. And he wrote them from 1130 to 1145 AD. The Encyclopedia Judaica, dated to 1906, says that the oldest commentaries and interpretations that are found in the Midrash and the Targum is that Song of Solomon is allegorical 
And that was the predominant view, both of Jews and Christians, until the 19th century. And it was, they, Encyclopedia Judaica believes the book was written between 200 to 100 BC. Uh, Catholic Answers believed it was written in the 4th century BC, because they say the Aramaic style in the text although it is in Hebrew. And there's several characters in this book. There's the lover, who's also the man, the king, the shepherd. All those characters is the one man. And then there's the beloved. The beloved is the woman or the bride. And then there is the chorus, which is the daughters of Jerusalem. And Song of Songs begins with the man who has two characters. In verse 4, it says, Shower me with the kisses of your mouth. Your love is more delicious than wine. Sweet is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like the spreading ointment. No wonder the maidens love you madly. Lure me to you. Let us hurry. Bring me, O king, into your chamber. So it's talking about a king. And then a few verses later, it says, Why must I wonder, like a veiled woman, beside the flocks of your companions? So the character is a king and he's a shepherd. And the chorus says, If you do not know, most beautiful woman, follow the tracks of the flock and pastor your young goats besides the shepherd's tents. So the man in the, in the story is both a shepherd and a king, which once again just seems to destroy the notion that it's literal. It's talking in symbolic language. And the lover is the king, and that's in Songs 1 verse 4 and chapter 3 verses 6 to 11 and chapter 7 verse 6. And then is also called a shepherd in chapter 1 verse 7, chapter 2 verse 16 and chapter 6 verses 2 and 3. So it keeps alternating between him being a king and a shepherd. And the scripture tells us that God is our king. Psalm 45, 6 says, Your divine throne will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice is the scepter of your kingship. And Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has set his throne in heaven. His eternal kingdom reigns over all. The New Testament shows that the True king is Jesus. Revelation chapter 19 verse 16 says he's king of kings. And 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 15. So Jesus is the messianic king. He's God incarnate and God himself is the king. And God is also the shepherd. In uh, Psalm 23 it says the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want and in 
John chapter 10 verses 1 to 18, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And rather than arguing that songs is literal about one man who's both a shepherd and a king, it's rather talking about God who was revealed in Jesus the Messiah as both uh, a shepherd and a king. He has that dual role. And also the man in the in the songs is a husband and Hosea chapter 3 verses 1 to 5 talks about how God was the husband to Israel and Israel was unfaithful Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5 says for your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called God of all the earth. So that's who Jesus was, the Holy One of Israel. And the Lord God himself is the husband, so to speak, to his people. And in the New Testament, this is applied in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 30. And it says, as for you, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, having cleansed her with the baptism by the word, that he might present the church to himself in all its radiance without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And Jesus is also described as the bridegroom. And Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 9 verse 15 and Revelation chapter 22 verse 17. And the character described here is King Solomon. And King Solomon was a type of Christ. At least he was a king, but King Solomon was not a shepherd. And so... I don't believe it's literally referring to King Solomon. King Solomon was a type of Christ in as far as he was the son of David and he was the king who built the temple that brought glory to God. He also turned into a type of antichrist. He turned to idol worship and he became a tyrant and he disobeyed the laws regulating kings in Deuteronomy. But in this particular Song of Solomon, he's presented in the positive aspects of Solomon. And furthermore, the author uses imagery of the vineyard it talks about the beloved and she says the voice of my lover there he comes springing across the mountains leaping over the hills like a gazelle or a young stag there he stands behind our wall looking through the windows peering through the lattice my lover speaks to me arise my love my beautiful one come away my lovely one come the winter is past the rains are over and gone flowers have appeared on earth the season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard. 
The fig tree forms its early fruit. The vines in blossom are fragrant. Arise, my beautiful one. Come with me, my love. Come. O oh, my dove, in the rocky cleft, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is so sweet and your face is so lovely. And then the chorus says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. For our vineyards are in flower. And it's, it's talking there about a beautiful idyllic place, like a garden, which brings us back to Eden in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And it shows that even little things that seem insignificant, like these foxes, can wreak havoc in our lives. And then she says, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, My lover is mine and I am his. He shepherds his flock among the lilies. Now this is bizarre. You, if you're a, a sheep farmer, you do not uh, shepherd your flock among lilies in the water. It actually is absurd if you take it literally. But it's not to be taken literally. And then she says that her lover is like a gazelle or a young stag on the rocky hills. And so the Song of Songs, it's a collection of love poems that symbolise God's love for his people and God's relationship with his people. And the language that's used for the vineyard in the songs is also used in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And I'll read them out. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved a love song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared the stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. Now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do that I have not done for my vineyard? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now I will let you know what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be burned. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. I will make it a wasteland. I will neither prune nor hoe it and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to send rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant vine. He looked for justice, but found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, the language in Isaiah 5 is a lot more negative because it's talking about judgment and God's judgment on Judah for being unfaithful to the covenant. But the language in the Song of Songs is a lot more positive 
because it's emphasising, as I just said, God's love for his people and God's relationship with his people, which is one that is based on love. Now we get to the next episode in the songs, which is about looking for her lover and finding him. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. On my bed at night, I looked for the one my heart loves. I sought him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. So I said, I will rise and go about the city, through the streets and the squares. I will seek the love of my heart. I sought him, but could not find him. I came upon the watchmen as they made their rounds of the city. Have you seen the love of my heart? As soon as I left them, I found the love of my heart. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. I beg you, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and hinds of the field, do not arouse or stir up love before its time has come. So this story, this episode, she wonders, where is my lover? And she gets up and looks for him. She takes initiative. She walks around. She seeks and then when she finds him, she's overcome with love and, and joy at finding him. And it's reminiscent of Jesus who says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, whoever seeks finds. And the door will be open to anyone who knocks. It's an attitude of seeking God. And a passage that this is very similar to, again, it's from Isaiah. And this time, Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 to 15. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your glorious garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised or the unclean will never enter you again. Shake off your dust and rise up. Sit on your throne, O Jerusalem. Loose the chains from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So Israel, or Judah here, is being described as a woman who's bedecked with fine clothing. Not unlike Song of Songs. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. Thus says the Lord God in the beginning, my people went down to Egypt and lived there as aliens. Lately, Assyria oppressed them without reason. But now what am I to do here, says the Lord, since my people have been carried off for nothing? Their masters make a boast of it, says the Lord. All day long my name is constantly despised. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore they will know on that day that it is I who say, Here I am. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet 
of those who bring good news, who herald peace and happiness, who proclaim salvation, who announce to Zion, your God is king. Listen, your watchmen, raise their voices, together they shout for joy, for they have seen with their own eyes the Lord returning to Zion. So the passage back in Song of Songs, the woman goes out and looks for her lover, who is the Lord, who is the king. And the watchmen are there as well. And here the watchmen are mentioned again. Break into shouts of joy together, O ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has consoled his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from that nation. Touch nothing unclean, go out from it and purify yourselves. You who carry the Lord's holy vessels. Yet you will not come out in haste. You will not leave in headlong flight. For the Lord will go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So there ends the passage of Isaiah. And now we get to the next part of chapter 3, which is about the coming king. And it refers to King Solomon, but I believe it is messianic in its reference to Christ. What is this coming from the wilderness like a pillar of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and every aromatic spice? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, escorted by sixty warriors, the strongest of Israel, all girded with swords, all seasoned in battle. Each is ready with sword at his side, each prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a carriage of wood from Lebanon. He made its columns of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple cloth, its framework inlaid with ivory. Come, daughters of Zion. See King Solomon wearing the diadem with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day his heart rejoiced. Hear the chorus, the daughters of Jerusalem, look forward to the coming king, who is Solomon, the son of David. Now, who was Jesus? Well, he was a descendant of Solomon and David. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when Jesus was welcomed by the wise men, they gave gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And all three of those are mentioned in Songs chapter 3. Myrrh and frankincense in verse 6, gold in verse 10. And purple robes was what Jesus was, was uh, put on him during the uh, abuse leading up to his crucifixion. They were mocking him as king, but he was actually being given the royal treatment in Mark chapter 15 verse 17 and John chapter 19 verse 2, where he got purple robes, which 
signifies royalty. And then the lover, the shepherd king, describes his beloved, how much he loves her, and he says to her in verse 8, Come from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Come down from the summit of Amana, from the crest of Senna and Hermon, from the dens of lions and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have ravished my heart. It does not appear to be literal. Lebanon was where King Solomon got the wood, the trees, the cedars to make his temple. And it's describing the glory and the splendor of God's holiness with building the temple. And as for him coming out of the wilderness like a pillar of smoke, this is reminiscent of Jesus who went into the wilderness fasting for 40 days and resisting the devil in the wilderness. So Jesus's ministry began with him coming out of the wilderness. Luke chapter 4 verses 1 to 13. And he fasted for 40 days just like Moses did in the desert in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Exodus 34:28 and Moses led the people with a pillar of smoke Exodus 13:21 and we saw that glory with Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7:1 where fire came down to uh, light up the sacrifice and Solomon was was as we said a type of Christ so was Moses in some ways but in, in many ways, this foretells the coming of Jesus. A side note, at the end of chapter 3, it says that King Solomon was crowned by his mother, the Queen Mother. And if you study the Old Testament, you'll find that the King of Israel, that his mother was the Queen. And with Jesus, who was the last and greatest King of Kings, his mother was Mary, who is regarded as Queen of Heaven. And in chapter 4, he, he describes the bride as having teeth like sheep, hair like goats, cheeks like pomegranates, a neck like the Tower of David. This is not really how a man describes the woman he loves. It's more like describing the splendour of Israel. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 7, You are wholly beautiful, my love, perfect and unblemished. And this is reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 5 in verses 26 and 27 that we read before. But I'll read it again, verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in all its radiance, without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. And that language used by Paul the Apostle is reminiscent of the Song of Songs, perfect and unblemished, and it leads me to believe that Paul the Apostle is in fact referencing the songs, and he is using that language. And if that's the case, then that would mean that he believe that this book was about Christ and his church.
about God and his covenant people rather than a sensual and sexual love poem. And it also says in this passage that uh, milk and honey are on your tongue. And this is language that is used in Exodus chapter 3 verse 17 where God says he'll bring his people into the land flowing with milk and honey, meaning the land of Canaan or Israel. Now we get to a very interesting part and that is he says in verse 12, You are a garden enclosed, my sister, my bride, a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed. And this is language of Eden. Eden in Genesis 2 and 3 was where the man and woman had their perfect relationship with God in the garden. But it got marred by sin and rebellion against God's, God's rules. But there's a promise given by Jesus in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 verses 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let him who believes in me drink. For scripture says, Out of him shall flow streams of living water. Jesus was referring to the Spirit, which those who believe in him were to receive. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, this is again mentioned in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, which says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, gushing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this water of the Holy Spirit is flowing out. And in Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, You are a garden enclosed, a garden enclosed, a fountain sealed. And then it talks about the fruits uh, in this garden, verses 13, 14, and in 15 it says, You are a garden fountain, a well of living water, streams gushing down from Lebanon. Again, I believe that Jesus, when he said that in John 7, was in fact quoting from here. And if Jesus had that in mind, then again he had the allegorical interpretation of songs rather than the literal one. And then the last verse of the chapter, Songs chapter 4 verse 16 says, Arise north wind, awake south wind, blow upon my garden and spread its fragrance abroad. Let my lover come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. This is calling on the north and the south winds to spread this fragrance of the garden to the other nations outside of Israel. Well, 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 is this language used anywhere else in Scripture? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 and 43, 
uh, building this temple and they wanted it to bring God glory to the nations outside of Israel. And it says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not from your people Israel comes from a far country because of your name, for they shall hear of your great name, your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, and praise in this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and do for the alien whatever he asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and may know that your name rests on this house which I have built. And a couple of chapters later, this prayer is answered. In chapter 10, verse 24, it says, And the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put into his mind. And Jesus also uses this language in the songs. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus rebuked the Jewish people who did not accept him. And he said in verse 42, At the judgment, the queen of the south will rise to condemn you. She came from the other side of the world to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And there is someone greater than Solomon here. And in Luke chapter 13, verses 28 and 29, it says, you will weep and grind your teeth when you see Abraham and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves left outside. But others will come and sit at table in the kingdom of God. People from east and west, from north and south. And I'll just read that verse again in Songs 4.16. Arise, north wind, awake, south wind, blow upon my garden and spread its, its fragrance abroad. Now we get to a story to be contrasted with the earlier one where she gets up and looks for her lover and finds him. This one is a little bit different. And... It says, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart kept vigil. I heard the knock of my lover. Open to me, my sister, my love, my perfect one, my dove. My head is wet with dew, my hair with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My lover thrust his hand through the lock opening, and my heart longed for him. I rose to open for my lover, and myrrh dripped from my hands, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handle of the lock. I opened to my lover, but he had turned and gone. My heart failed at his flight. I sought him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen came upon me as they made their rounds of the city. They beat me and wounded me. They took away my mantle, those guardians of the walls. 
I beg you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you ever find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him that I am faint with love. So this story is a bit different. The lover comes to her, knocks on the door, and she's, I don't know, she's reluctant to come to him. And then she thinks, ah, all right. But when, by the time she gets to the door, he's gone. And it can be that way with God. It reminds me of another passage in Scripture from the book of Job. Job chapter 33 verses 14 to 18 says, For first time God speaks in one way, now in another, though people do not realise it, in a dream, in a night vision, when deep sleep falls on all, while they slumber in their beds. It is then he opens their ears and gives warning by terrifying them. So he turns man from wrongdoing and keeps him away from pride. God preserves his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Once again, like this passage in Songs, it's about lying in your bed and God comes to you and you don't realise it, or you're reluctant, and God can say something to a person in a dream or a vision of the night, but they don't realise it, or they forget it. It tells us something about our relationship with God, that we have to be open, we have to be vigilant and ready, and we have to seek Him with all our heart, and not have an attitude of reluctance, like the Beloved has in Songs chapter 5. And then when she comes out, the watchmen of the city this time beat her. And many of the prophets of God, like Ezekiel, were watchmen who rebuked the people for their coldness, their lukewarmness, or their apostasy. Well, we read on, chapter 5, verse 9, the chorus of the daughters of Jerusalem then says, How is your lover better than others? O most beautiful woman, how is your lover better than others, that you do so enjoin us? And now, at this time, she praises him. Radiant and ruddy, my lover, stands among thousands. Pure gold is his head. His hair is wavy, black as the raven. His eyes are like doves. His hands are rods of gold, adorned with jewels. His body is polished ivory, covered with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster. He has the huge, the stature of Lebanon, excelling like cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is most worthy of desire. Such is my friend, such is my lover. O daughters of Jerusalem. And this description fits Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12 onward says, I turned to see who was speaking to me, and behind me were seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of these I saw someone like a son of man wearing a robe, that reached down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. 
His head and his hair were as white as wool or snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which has been refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And he held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came out of his mouth, and his face shone like the sun in all its brilliance. And she uses similar descriptions in the songs in chapter 5, verses 10 to 16. And if you think this has a sad uh, story where she looks for her lover and can't find him, read on. It has a happier ending here where it says, the chorus, chapter 6, verse 1, Where has your lover gone, O most beautiful woman? Where has your lover turned that we may help you look for him? And she finds him. My lover has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to pasture his flock in the garden and to gather lilies. My lover is mine and I am his. He shepherds his flock among the lilies. So when she starts to praise him again, she gets him again. And it's like that with God. Our coldness, our lukewarmness, our reluctance to be with God, we can lose him. And when we worship him and we praise him and we long for him, he returns to us. And not only that, the lover pours praise on his beloved and he says that in chapter 6, verses 4 to 10, that she's beautiful as Jerusalem. She's as majestic as bannered troops. Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as bannered troops. This is not a description of a literal woman. It's a description of the magnificence of Jerusalem and its splendour in its relationship with God. And this is also reminiscent of Revelation chapter 12, where it talks about the woman who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. That's from Revelation. Revelation is a highly symbolic book, and it has often multiple meanings. And the woman in there is Israel. She's also the church. And she is also Mary. All three of those interpretations are correct as far as I'm concerned. Revelation has multiple meanings. There are some aspects that definitely apply to Israel, others that apply to the church, and others that can only apply to Mary. And Mary is the mother of the church, and she's also the, the ideal Christian in many ways. And she's the one who gives birth to the Messiah. It's not strictly literal, of course, because uh, both Song of Songs and Revelation are highly symbolic books. But that's how the description of God's covenant people and then the lover continues praising her and he calls her the Shulamite and he says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
which is, is used in Isaiah 52, 7, which we read, and that's quoted in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And in Songs chapter two, uh, 7, verse 2, it says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals. He then says, She has a belly full of wine and wheat, or bread, which it's interesting that those are the sacraments used in the Eucharist, bread and wine. That was what Jesus said. Take, eat, this is my body, and uh, drink this blood of my covenant. And Jesus said in John chapter 6, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And that's what the lover says in praise of the woman who is the church. He says, how beautiful are your feet, your shapely thighs are like jewels, the work of a master craftsman. Your navel is a bowl well-rounded, never lacking exquisitely blended wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat with lilies around it. And here he is praising the bread and the wine that's in her body. If this is literal, the scripture would never be encouraging someone to be excessively drinking wine. But this is referring, I believe, it's a prophecy of the Eucharist in the body of the church, partaking of it. And once again, it goes on a bit further and uses descriptions that are not descriptions you would give in compliments to a literal woman, they're compliments to the glory of Israel and Judah. He says, your neck is an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabbin. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. I don't think too many women would like it if you said your nose looks like the Empire State Building. But the Empire State Building is, is part of the glory of New York City. So it brings glory to the, to the city itself, but you wouldn't say to a woman, you have a nose that looks like the Empire State Building. In fact, there is a picture I saw of the Song of Songs in which they literally drew the woman uh, with a, a neck that's a tower and eyes as a pair of doves and a nose that also looks like a tower. And it looks quite grotesque. And it obviously is not referring to a literal woman. Your crowned head is Mount Carmel. Your flowing hair is royal purple, which holds a king captive in its tresses. How beautiful you are, how lovely. Like a palm tree, you are stately, and like its clusters are your breasts. And I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruits. Uh, the palm tree, there were palm tree carvings in the Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 7 verse 36 and verse 42 there were pomegranates which is also used in the description. And then in chapter 7 verse 10 chapter to chapter 8 verse 4 it talks about the 
lover and the beloved having fellowship in the garden. And that is where God and humans had their original fellowship that was untainted by sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 and 3. And then chapter 8 verse 5 has a contrast from earlier in the book. In chapter 3 verse 6, the chorus of the daughters of Jerusalem ask, what is this coming from the wilderness like a pillar of smoke? But now in chapter 8 verse 5, it says, who is this coming from the wilderness, leaning upon her lover? Now the lover and the beloved are coming out together from the wilderness. And chapter 5, sorry, chapter 8 verse 5 says, I aroused your love under the apple tree where you were conceived by your mother. And this seems to possibly have some connection to Genesis chapter 3, where Eve was tempted at the tree and the human race was cast out. Eve, of course, is called the mother of all living in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20. And now we get to a love poem. And here it's, it is, in Songs chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal on your heart. Set me as a seal on your arm. For love is strong as death. It's passion, powerful as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire. It blazes like a mighty flame. No flood can extinguish love nor can river submerge it. If one were to offer for love all the wealth of his house, contempt is all that he would purchase. And years ago I read this and I thought to myself, this is the most beautiful love poem ever written. And a couple, a, a year and a bit ago, when my brother got married, I said to him, you should have this passage read at your wedding and he did that and I thought that's the perfect poetry to have at a wedding however I realized when reading it that it's actually a retelling of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 8 it's simply rephrasing that passage in Deuteronomy and so we'll read the passage in Deuteronomy and in chapter 6 verses 4 to 8 it says listen O Israel the Lord our God is the one Lord and so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength Engrave on your heart the words that I command you today. Repeat them over and over to your children. Speak of them when you are at home and when you travel, when you lie down and when you rise. Tie them around your arm as a sign and let them be as a band on your forehead. This passage is saying to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. 
And now in Psalms chapter 8, it is again using very, very passionate language about love. And it says, set it as a seal upon your heart and upon your arm. And Deuteronomy says, tie them around your arm as a sign. And that you'd be a fool to trade in anything but love. Now we finally get to the last chapter, which is more of an appendix or a short appendix and then two verses that appear to be unrelated to the flow of the rest of the book. But I believe they have their place. And this is the appendix of what I call the little sister. Psalms chapter 8 verses 8 to 10. We have a little sister with her breasts yet unformed. What shall we do for her when she is claimed for marriage? If she were a rampart, that's like a wall of a castle, fortified wall, if she were a rampart, we will build towers of silver on it. If she were a gate, we would enclose it with panels of cedar. Well, that's a very interesting passage, isn't it? It says, if she's a rampart, a defensive wall. I think most of us work out that this language is saying a, a girl who keeps her virginity and protects her modesty versus a woman who is a gate, someone who is ready to open them. But I don't believe this is literally saying about this. It's a parallel with Ezekiel chapter 16, in which God uses a parable that's not literally true, but is symbolic and God says that when Israel was a young girl and she was bleeding and she'd just been born and God rescued her and covered her up as she grew to maturity and was rescued by God. But then she became the unfaithful harlot. And God then eventually predicts his restoration of a proper relationship with him. And this harlotry actually refers to idolatry and abandoning God. And another parallel passage a few chapters later is Ezekiel chapter 23. And it talks about the sinful sisters, Ohola, which is Samaria, or the ten tribes of Israel, and Oholibah, which is Jerusalem or Judah. And it talks about their so-called sexual liaisons with Egypt, Babylon and Assyria. But it doesn't literally mean literal sex between these two girls and their, their lovers. It rather is referring to when the Israelites went off and worshipped the gods of Egypt, Babylon and Assyria. And eventually, in verses 48 and 49 of Ezekiel 23, it talks about them becoming morally pure and returning to God. It's not literal, but allegorical. And I believe the fulfilment of that is found in another allegorical symbolic book, and that is the book of Judith. Judith 
The book of Judith is not an historical book. It's deliberately written as an allegory. It has the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, but he's called king of the Assyrians, when everyone knew he was king of that. But it's, it's God's way of describing the two evil enemies of Israel, Babylon and Assyria, together, and they come against uh, a small town of Bethulia, which means virgin. And who should foil their plan but a woman called Judith. The name simply means Jewess or Jewish woman. And she foils their plan to violate the virgin city of Bethulia. And Judith, in many ways, is the opposite of the sinful sisters of Ezekiel 23. She's a pure, upright widow who overcomes the sexual desires of Holofernes by he tries to get her drunk, but she gets him drunk and chops his head off. And the armies of Nebuchadnezzar flee in defeat. And then finally we get to the, the last two verses. Chapter 8 verse 13 says, You who dwell in the gardens, with your friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. This is what the lover, this is what God, the king, the shepherd is saying. Let me hear your voice. Remember when she lost her lover? Back in chapter 5, verse 2, and she couldn't find him. When she praised him, he came back. And so this is really a call to worship. Let me hear your voice. That's what God says. Let me hear your voice. And then in verse 14, their voice is, Make haste, my lover. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the spice-laden hills. And that ends the book of songs which is similar to the ending of revelation in chapter 22 verse 21 revelation says amen come lord jesus and songs chapter 8 verse 14 says make haste my lover be like a gazelle or a young stag on the spice laden hills and I'll tell you what, since adopting this allegorical interpretation, I have never appreciated this book as much as I have. And I agree with Rabbi Akiba, who 1800 years ago said, all the writings in the Bible are holy, but the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. And so I think it's a very beautiful, edifying book. And there is so many treasures to be gained and insights. And I feel like I've only, what we've looked at today is just skimming the bare surface. And this is a book I intend to get more and more deeper in. And I would encourage you, my friends, to do the same as well. Thank you for listening. And God bless.